Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, welcome to the Howie Games, and thanks for tuning into episode 43 of our little show. This week, with the tennis summer in full swing in Australia, we are going to take you behind the scenes of life on the tennis tour and show you what it's really like with a lovely fella by the name of Sam Groff. Game set match, Groff. Sam has spent the majority of the last 12 years playing professional tennis. He's played in all the majors, taken a set off the great Roger Federer at Wimbledon, no easy task, won in the region of $2 million in prize money, played at the Olympics and has had some epic results representing Australia in the Davis Cup. But Sam is about to retire from the game he loves. Tennis at the elite level can be lucrative. It can be exhilarating, playing in front of packed houses and adoring fans and can lead to stardom few athletes ever reach. But, as Sam explains, it can also be about desperately needing to win just to pay the bills. It can be played in front of no fans in faraway locations that aren't exactly exotic and can be a real mental and physical grind. From the outside, sure, we see the greats like Federer and Williams earning riches impossible to imagine. Nadal and Murray travelling first class and staying in five-star hotels. Djokovic and Sharapova travelling with trainers, coaches, physios, dietitians, and more. The entourage, the works. But this isn't the norm for most on the tennis tour. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. In this episode, Sam talks about what it's like to play some of the greats of the game, match-fixing approaches, life on tour, success, failure, walking away from tennis to play footy of all things, drinking to cope, and what representing his country means to him. Sam explains but never complains. Sam Groth is a fella that's given his all to his sport and has had a wonderful ride. No matter what challenges have been thrown his way, he has repeatedly stepped up and had a crack. He's the type of bloke who you would love on your side when the chips are down. Enjoy the world of Sam Groth, tennis warrior. That's what he is, actually. Tennis warrior. Enjoy, Sam. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I Sam Groth, welcome to the Howie Games Great to have you on I've been chasing this for about 11 months, I reckon, but you're a hard man to track down, but now you've got a bit more time. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, sorry, mate. It took me a little while to get back <laughs> to you. Um, and then when I finally did, I did, couldn't give you time because, yeah, I've had a few little things going on in my life, I guess. A few little things. One would be retirement from tennis. You announced it when we're doing this interview just last week. Why? Um, you know, I think the time's right, to be honest. Um, you know, I... I it's been a tough probably last couple of years for me. Um, 2015 was such a good year, um, you know, but finished with foot surgery and then probably struggled to bounce back from that over the last two years. And sort of the last year or so, it's sort of become a grind, um, you know, the, the grind of the tour and the travel and the mm. time away and, yeah, probably doing what I need to do day in, day out just became a bit much. And, um, you know, tennis is a very selfish, lonely lifestyle and when sort of it, didn't become fun for me anymore and I didn't really have the drive, um, you know, the lures of home and, you know, thinking about what comes next sort of, you know, really, really dragged me in. I'm re- I've really been looking forward to this. I've been reading and I've been watching your, your tennis blog, My Tennis Life, and reading it and I, I'm really looking forward to this because we hear about 
Nadal and we hear about Federer and we hear about Djokovic and millions of dollars and zillions of dollars and that's what we think tennis is. But it's not necessarily the case. So I'm really looking forward to exploring that with you, mate. But what is next? Like you've only retired four days ago. You're playing at the Australian Open. This will be out before the Australian Open. Good luck for that. But is it a scary proposition? Is it an exciting proposition? How are you feeling about it, mate? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, once I decided that I was done with tennis, that became a pretty easy decision. Um, I spoke to a lot of people and made sure that I was doing the right thing and asked a lot of questions of a lot of people, but that sort of became easy. Um, so that didn't worry me. Mm. Um, but I guess, yeah, working out what comes next is sort of the hard thing. Um, and to be honest, like going into just coaching day in, day out is not really what I want to do. Um, and if I was going to do it, the only way I would do it is if I was working with something, a project that I saw had you know, a, a life um, somewhere where it could really go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that I want to take a pro guy on um, and then go back on the road again because tennis, you can't avoid that travel side of things. So I've tried to be smart while I've been playing and got myself involved in the media and all that stuff. And I've been having a bunch of meetings and just calling people and picking the brains of a lot of people. So it's good that you're here as well for me. Um, but, you know, calling a lot of people that I've met over the years and just you know, seeing what they think and how they go about what they do. And probably the same way I go about my tennis is how I'm going to go about the next stage. You know, whatever I decide to do, I'm going to give it everything I've got. Um, but it's just finding something that I'm really passionate about and that I want to do. I think and we were just discussing it now that I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of different athletes from a lot of different sports in, in, in a commentary role. And I'm always amazed that I say you guys, you guys and girls don't understand the knowledge that sometimes you have as the average punter watching tennis there's a million things that you would do in day-to-day life that i would have no understanding of and i think it's the the special comments people for want of a better term that can bring that to light and talk about what this guy does in the locker room beforehand or what he eats or how you struggle with his little thing or if your washing got lost it'd blow your routine out it's that type of thing that we as listeners at home i think we lap that stuff up yeah i mean maybe that's something i can you know take on board definitely when i start doing it because you know, tennis is probably a little different to a lot of sports where we are on the road so much and yeah. there is so many little things that can go wrong or happen over the course of a year. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, you've been eating the same meal all week at a restaurant and that restaurant's closed on the day before the final and you're superstitious or, like you said, your laundry maybe gets lost because these things happen. Um, you know, your shoes, you know, don't turn up in a package that was supposed to when the grass court comes around and the company didn't quite get around to sending them in time or... <laughs> You know, there's so many different things that can go wrong. You know, you go to Asia and you're stuck in a place playing a challenger tournament and you've got food poisoning for the first four days of the tournament. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so many different things that can happen. And, yeah, I mean, I guess for me with my tennis life, that's something I try to give people an insight into with my blog series this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, moving into hopefully the media side, it's maybe something I can, you know, give people a little more insight to that sort of stuff as, as I go along. Well, I look forward to listening to your blossoming sporting commentary career or whatever path you may go down, but we need to go back before we go forward, Sammy. Where did tennis start for you? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Korowa. Um, right. I was actually born in Narandra, so up about an hour from Wagga. Country um, kid? Country kid. Uh, lived in Narandra for a year, lived in Daniliquin for a year. My sister was born there and then moved to Korowa when I was sort of two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, lived there for the first 10 years of my life. Uh, my parents had a TAB. And so I just played every sport, Um, you know, a town of 5,000 people. You play everything at school, you do athletics, swimming, 
basketball, cricket, footy, and tennis was probably the last sport I had. Uh, I started playing tennis at 10, which is when you look at all the other guys on tour or girls, it's, it's quite late. Um, but I was lucky, I think, growing up in the country that I could do everything and, you know, I enjoyed everything. Um, and then when I went to high school, we moved to Aubrey. Um, you know, the big smoke from when you're coming from a, a <laughs> town of 5,000 people, you go to, you know, Aubrey Donga's got 95,000. So, you know, you all of a sudden feel like you go to a big place. I mean, I'll go back to Aubrey now and, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, very, very different to, you know, a lot of the cities I spend most of my time in. But The big smoke in Aubrey, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's what it felt like when you're, you know, a, a 10 or you know, 11-year-old kid from a town of 5,000 people. That's what it feels like. Um, and then that's sort of where I, you know, I still played footy. I played footy up until I was 16. Um, but yeah, tennis and footy. And then at 16, uh, I made the final of the Australian Nationals. Um, two weeks in a row, we had a lead-in tournament and the main tournament. And got an invite from Tennis Australia to come down to Melbourne. Um, came down and lived with a, a family, uh, friends of mine that were from Yarrawonga, um, who used to play tennis, lived with them for six months. Then my parents made the move down with my brother and sister. Um, I think they were ready to go, you know, somewhere bigger as well. And then I actually moved to London when I was, I spent about six months in London when I was 17 and then moved to London for good at 18 with the Australian Institute of Sport for four years and, yeah. To become a professional tennis player? Yeah. So um, I stopped playing footy. The last time I played footy was after that Australian Nationals when I got invited to Melbourne. Um, well, last time I played footy until my year off. Which we'll get to. Um, yeah. We'll get. What position? When when I was younger, or yeah, when you were younger, um, I used to play. I spent a lot of time in the ruck. Right, we're um, talking Australian rules football. Australian yeah. rules football, of course, the only. Yes, you're uh, a massive Swans fan, so you're a big yeah. ruckman because you're a big unit. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not tall for a ruckman, um, but I could get around the ground quicker than a lot of the ruckmen. Mm-hmm. So that sort of was good when I was younger. Um, didn't really like standing still too much, <laughs> which changed a bit later on. But um, yeah, tennis just became it, and. Is my dog having a bark in the background? This there. is Sorry little Millie. <laughs> is uh, Millie? Yeah, Millie. She's a little dog. She's watching the World Series at the moment, so she should be okay there. Yeah. Um, so at this stage as an 18-year-old and 19-year-old, what are your dreams as far as tennis go? Like you want to be the world number one or you want to, what do you want to do? Yeah, I mean, if you asked me when I was 17, 18 what I wanted to do um, – yeah, I mean, it was world number one, win Wimbledon, mm. play Davis Cup, all these, you know, things that you that you dream of. And I guess at that age, you think everything's possible and maybe your perception of what the tour is actually like and how hard it is is a little bit skewed. And, um, yeah, definitely, uh, I guess, as the years went on, obviously that's always the dream and the goal, but you definitely reassess sort of where you actually are in the... the uh, the scope of things, I guess. What would you say now that you're just retiring to that kid that moved to London as a 17-year-old that thought, yep, I'll just get out there and hit balls and become the best player in the world? Um, I think I'd just try to speak to them about what life on tour is actually like. Um, I would never tell anyone to check their dreams. Um, you know, try and win a Grand Slam and, and do everything you can to do that because even though I probably got to a stage where I knew that wasn't possible, um, you know, I could have Wimbledon ran seven magical matches mm. together and you never know. Just like the movie. Yeah, maybe. But the thing is you still work like that's, you know, what you want to do. You can't work to be 50 in the world. You work to be number one and however good you are is how good you are. And Yeah, but more for a kid that age, I'd probably try to prepare them for how hard the tour actually is. And it's actually something I'm trying to do now a little bit with Tennis Australia is put something in place where it can help these kids 
you know, just and, and their parents, I think, because I think the expectation of what it actually is like is very different from the mm. reality of it. So when did you first play a professional tennis match? How old were you? I think I played some satellite qualifying events when I was 16. Okay. Um, and I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no good. Not pure ball was, uh, straight up. No, nah, I mean, I was, to be honest, as a, as a junior coming through, I was not great. Um you know, I might have been good up in the country and um, I think I won a 14s doubles Australian championship um, and then I made final of the 16s. But until I made final of the 16s nationals, my best result was like a third round. Um, I wasn't a superstar junior. Um, my last year of juniors, I won two ITF tournaments, which is the ITF you know junior circuit. Mm-hmm. I won two low-level tournaments and then actually made final of the Wimbledon doubles in juniors. Um, so that was my sort of first thing that I guess anyone sort of looked and went okay maybe this kid's all right um but yeah I mean it took me once I turned pro and I got my first wild card into a pro event was up in Rockhampton I made quarterfinals and I got two ATP points and I think it took me almost eight months to get another one so like it wasn't it definitely wasn't uh you know burst onto the scenes and light the world on fire sort of thing that you might see some of these 18 or 19 year old kids doing right now was definitely a slow and steady race what type of prize money do you get when you've won um, a couple of matches up in northern Queensland? Can oh, you remember? It was a 10,000 future, which they've, they've made the minimum level 15,000 now in the last year or so. But I think first round of a 10,000 is about $112 before tax. Before tax. <laughs> right. So, which depending on what country you're on, depends how much tax they're taking from you. But yeah, it might have been a couple of hundred, 300 bucks, maybe something like that for a quarterfinal, which. Doesn't really cover the flights and accommodation and food and everything no. for a week in Rockhampton. Which we'll, we'll get to that. So when do you first play a, a professional match overseas? Um, I'm. I did play some futures events after that junior Wimbledon, um, some qualies and some doubles. Um, but my first real experience of being overseas for a period of time was when I turned eighteen and I joined the AIS. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, boys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to base four of you in London the first year. Um, there was four guys, two coaches uh, and a physio and a fitness trainer who the guy did the same job. Um, and, yeah, it was like such a shock for me. They put us up in a house and basically lived in London for, you know, it ended up being the next sort of four years. Wow. Um, but my first year over there, I actually missed the Australian summer, um, which for me, when you're an Australian player growing up, you want to play the Australian Open and they said, well, no, you're probably not going to get any opportunities where the ranking is because it wasn't very good. Um, they said, let's stay in Europe and play indoor tournaments. So I spent New Year's in the snow in London, or snow, sleet, rain, and it was it was a little depressing actually. Um, you know, for a kid that wanted to be overseas traveling and playing tennis, but to be missing the Australian summer and seeing the Australian Open going on and being in miserable Europe at the time, it was, uh, it was actually tough. I don't know if you've read um, Andre Agassi's book, Open. Yep. I've read a lot of sports books. Have you read that book? Yeah, I've re- I mean, I've read most of it. The first 45 pages of that book is as good a sports book as I've read when he was the best player in the world and the what he put himself through mentally before going on court, the, the lack of confidence and the self-doubt and all those things. What were you like going out on a tennis court? Uh, in the early days? Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough because... Um, <sighs> I just never been that good. So like I was doing all this work and I wasn't winning a lot of matches and you know I was lucky that the guys I was travelling with were great and a couple of you know guys I've become you know Chris Guccione was one of the guys and he was ranked a lot higher obviously um, when he was younger but 
um, yeah, it was tough. I mean, you and I was on the road and you know, I was away from my family and, you know, the other side of the world and you, I didn't have a great support network to lean on. And I sort of found it hard sometimes to speak to the coaches and stuff involved because they're trying to do everything they can for you. And then for you to go back and say, look, I'm struggling with this was sort of a hard thing, uh, especially for an 18-year-old kid that grew up in the country and spent six or nine months in Melbourne before they got their first experience of then living in another country. It was, uh, it was a kid that thought Albury was big. Yeah, I'm living in London. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a big shock. So, And, you know, financially it was hard and... You know, I think the dollar was like three to one with the pound at the time. Yeah, so you, like everything was just completely. Um, I mean, I grew up quick. For a kid from the country, I grew up very, very quick. Let's talk about Sammy' life as a professional tennis player. You sort of almost had two cracks at it, which you had a first career, and then you came back and retired, for want of a better term, and then went back again and had a lot of success. So tell me some of the places you played. We think tennis, right, we think Flushing Meadows, we think Roland Garros, we think Wimbledon and we think Melbourne Park. Tell me about some of the places you've played. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky I did have played at those places. My word, you have. Um, you know, I've played, I was lucky that, not I say lucky, but I was 15 in the world, so I was lucky that I got to go to the big tournaments and play on the big stages and, you know, but I played Futures in Algeria um, in a place called Skikta during a national election where we weren't allowed to leave the hotel for three days. Right. Um, where they'd turn the water off between nine and five because <laughs> it was in the middle of the desert. Right. <laughs> um, that was interesting. I played up in northern Norway um, where the nearest ATM machine was 17 kilometres away <laughs> um, and a loaf of bread in the local shop was about 12 bucks. Ooh. Um, Mate, I've I've been everywhere. I like um, these stories. Keep going. Yeah, you, I mean, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of some of the obscure places. I mean, I, I've been to everywhere in Asia. Um, you know, and I don't know. I mean, it's just everywhere. I've been everywhere and anywhere. And you think of like you go to play in Germany, but you're in a small town and you're in a hotel that's you know quite dodgy. And some of the small places in France. I mean, France is a beautiful country, but you know, you're in some of these small little hotels in mm. these small towns playing futures events and. Yeah, I mean, uh, Uzbekistan, that was an interesting one. Uzbekistan? Yeah, been to Uzbekistan a few times. What was that, the Uzbekistan Open or what? Goes oh, on over challenger there? events. Okay. They have a lot of events in these. I don't know, like someone there loves tennis and they keep putting money up at these tournaments. <laughs> and the thing is when you're chasing ranking and you know, you're trying to build your way, uh, especially for me, I didn't love clay. So being in Europe at certain times of the year, I had to go play certain events to try to you know chase um, my ranking and that sort of thing. Um so yeah, Uzbekistan was on hard court, so I went there, but it was hot. It was actually a town called or a city called Kashi, mm. um, which is where the US military used to base. Used to my dog's chasing a cricket ball. She can't work it out. <laughs> Come on, Mill. Um, it was a place called Kashi where the US had, used to have their uh, military base outside of Afghanistan because it's close to the Afghan border. So hang on, I'll just hit pause for a second. Hang on. No, don't be worried. The dog sorted out. So Okay, you're going to these places. How does it work? Do, do you have to ring up and book the hotels? Is it taken care of? Who pays? What happens? Um, so tennis players basically fund themselves um, to a certain level. So at the top, uh, at the Grand Slam, you'll get like a per diem per day when you're in the main draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, qualifying is only half of the main draw per diem, which is well, rough because your expenses are still the same. <laughs> so so what's, <laughs> a, what's a main draw Grand Slam per diem um, per it, day? It just depends on which okay. city. Um 
But yeah, I mean, let's say $300. Okay. Yeah, and it's normally whatever the price of the official hotel is. So they basically bake it that you can stay at the official hotel. Okay. Um, so quality is normally half. Uh, ATP events, they'll pay five nights, so minimum, um, for singles. Uh, doubles, I think, is just for as long as you're in the tournament. Singles mm. is five nights, but if you keep winning and you're in the tournament, they pay. Uh, some challenger events offer plus H, like hospitality, and so they'll pay the five nights. Um, and then if you keep winning, you get it. If you lose, you're done. Um, a lot of those events don't offer it, and I think the ATP is trying to make it maybe in two years' time compulsory that they have to to sort of help the guys fund that so, so uh, you're so for those you're booking your hotel yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've got an, I've got a management company um, that's been helping me, um, and so they do a lot of my bookings. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you haven't got that, then it's you know book it yourself. And <laughs> I'm unbelievably good at flights. That's what I'm very good at. <laughs> right. Because as a tennis player, I can't. If I turn up to a tournament on Saturday and I play on Monday, I don't know if I'm leaving on Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, no. Thursday, Sunday. Um, yeah, and so I'm very good at finding a last-minute flight to wherever I have to go, and also got a hell of a lot of frequent fly points. <laughs> oh, I can... You do. So when you're in that in that first phase of your career and you're not playing at Wimbledon every week, etc., how money conscious do you need to be, and what are you doing to make sure you've got enough money to continue the journey? Yeah, I mean it's it's incredibly money conscious, uh, especially when you're a young kid living in London, which is expensive. Mm. Um, you know, I was lucky; my parents helped me out, but also the first few years in the AIS, um, a lot of it was paid for, um, but we did have a like a prize money payback sort of system. Um, I guess that held us accountable, you know, to certain things. So even though our prize money wasn't matching what we were getting, we still had, I guess, an accountability towards, you know, what we were doing. Yeah. Um, but if you're out there by yourself, I mean, there's a lot of guys that go out there and do it without. We're lucky in Australia that we have a you know, a big federation that's got a grand slam. Um, but if you're from somewhere else that doesn't, we don't have that support. Uh, I liken it to people for traveling for our expenses is like, what would you spend when you go on holidays? Okay, now take out the leisure stuff because that's not necessity, but you're paying for a flight, which we do every week. You're paying for your hotel and you're paying for all your meals. Um, and that's without the same for your coach. So once you get to a level where you're paying a coach, it's the same. You're paying a coach's flights, a coach's hotel, a coach's meals, plus a salary. What, so what, What's a salary for a general coach? I know we're not talking Ivan uh, Lendl here. It's a no, hard I mean, question. It's very dependent. I think the hard thing with getting travelling coaches is people who are prepared to leave their family or leave mm. the home life behind because it's the same for them. And they've got to go and spend 30 to 40 weeks a year on the road. So if, if someone's giving you that commitment, I'm not... Oh, yeah, or general figures. Are you paying... Uh, um, you know, an okay coach, a hundred thousand a year, or fifty thousand a year, or two hundred, or half a million. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're probably looking at a lot of them working US dollars. Probably, you know, I'm, I'm at least two and a half thousand a week US. I would say. So it's over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, and what about your medical? plus bonuses? Plus bonuses, so win bonuses. Yeah. Or, so I mean, okay. and, and some might be that's just right. Some might be. Uh, less salary, bigger bonus. Some might be more salary, no bonus. Um, it just depends on the way you set it up with. And what about your, your, the medical side of things? I'm sure Roger Federer's got his own physio, but what's Sam Groth doing that he can get out on the court every day? He's not travelling with his own physio, I can tell you that. <laughs> right, right. No, um, you know, at the level I've been at for the last few years, the ATP's been very good. Yep. Um, they have you know guys week in, week out on tour. Um I was also lucky because I played Davis Cup for so many years that we, you know, get some assistance with that. There's been a guy 
or a girl for the last, well, pretty much for a lot of my career um, that does X number of weeks. It's not every week, um, but that covers that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, all my other medical, you know, I pay all my medical bills. So if I have to go overseas and I get an MRI, um, whatever, whatever bill pops up, I mean, I pay. It's, 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 it's a self-run business. It's, so what does that business need to make currently on the ATP tour to break even? So at the end of the year, I've needed to win how much in prize money to say I haven't made a cent this year? Uh, coach or no coach? Coach. Um, I'm going to say... 200 to yeah, 200 to 250 maybe to break even to not make yeah i mean if you're if if you're thinking about before tax so you know you're paying once you're making that much money you're paying a pretty fair chunk in tax as well mm. um and you're always paying tax in every country some you can get it back some you can't so um, the price check is taxed a lot of countries yeah like us is automatically 30 percent if you're not a u.s resident okay so you know, tax treaties and all that stuff in Australia and the US and all this stuff. Okay, I have an accountant that deals with that, so I don't worry about it. But mm. I still get taxed. Um, but yeah, I mean, expenses are high. Um, you know, it's it's. I, I say I spend forty weeks a year away, so it's forty weeks of being on holiday. Basically, that's you know. Yeah, I get you. You tell me what it costs you to go on a two week holiday, and then yep. multiply it by twenty, and that's my expenses personally, plus my coach, plus his salary, plus the weeks where my fiance Brit travels with me. Um, you know, her food and her flights and it's, you know, and it's the stuff you got to do. I mean, it's, it's an investment in yourself, all this stuff, um, you know, and so the good years you make money and you don't worry about it. It's just a, you know, this is what's the best for my career. And then other times you're like thinking how the hell I can pay my coach's bill that's coming through at the end of the week if I don't win this next match. So how do you feel going out on court at that stage? Because we just think you want to win because you want to win because you want to be the best player in the world. But you're painting a scenario, which is really what I wanted to talk about with you, that you've got to win, like I've got to go to work to pay the rent. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what it was like. And to be honest, when I came back to tennis, um, you know, I had eight or nine months off where I didn't play and I worked, and but I didn't really have any money to start again. And I'll, I'll show you one little thing here. This is what I did. You're reaching up to a wine bottle. When did you get on the Terps for nine months? <laughs> no, but like I sat in a in a in um our my girlfriend's dining room, mm. and we put labels on about I don't know a hundred dozen clean skin bottles, and we ran like a trivia night, and we sold these off cheap. That's one of the, probably the last bottles. I don't know if there's anyone out there has got any more, but and we sold it, and that's how I got myself back on tour. By selling, just I had a trivia night at my local club and we sold a bunch of these to friends and family <laughs> and people who, you know, we thought, you know, might be interested just sort of help me get back out there and that's how I funded it. Serve it hard and fast for best results. <laughs> However, seconds may result in extra bounce with some solid returns. It's uh, Sam Serve, Bin 263, the Cab Sav Shiraz 2006, harvested from two BT vineyards in the Pyrenees and Grampians region of Victoria. I like it. I like it. More of Sammy in a moment. Next week on the Howie Games, Yelena Dockage. Yelena has recently released a book called Unbreakable, which details her life on the tennis tour lived under the shadow of her abusive father. It is the most courageous book I've ever read, one you should read for all sorts of reasons. The episode, it'll probably shock you and most likely hurt you, like it did me, but Yelena's grace, honesty and matter-of-fact approach is one that deserves to be heard. Um, very often I would go you know, out there on the court, even later when I my, my ranking dropped, maybe I was 100 in the world, 
but people don't realize I was going out there with all of these problems and winning, you know, a match maybe on the challenger level was such a big accomplishment. And it's hard to explain that to people on, you know, such an individual sport and a tough tour like that. But for me, those were, you know, accomplishments because there was so much going on still in my private life that I, again, talk about and everything that he was putting me through. I mean, I'm not sure which player in the world, if ever, has had to have security guards to protect them against their father, you know, threatening to come and kill everybody. So I think that in itself going out on the court is an accomplishment. So, yeah. That's the incredible Yelena Dockage next week on the Howie Games. Back to Sam. So it gets to, was it 2011? You yep. pulled the pin on professional tennis for a while. What was the best moment you had in professional tennis to that point? I had a wild card the Australian Open, 2009. Um, you know, so by 2009, I sort of got myself to a level where I was 210 in the world and I had some chances to sort of start doing things. Um, playing main draw at my home Grand Slam was massive. I lost in four sets to Marty Fish. I got to top 10 in the world that year. Um, and, you know, I thought everything was going great, to be honest. <laughs> So then why, a couple of years after that, had you decided, right, I'm done with... Did you actually... That's it, I'm retiring? Yeah, I, at the time, I never wanted to look at a tennis ball ever again. Why? Um, so I was married, um, and that sort of all came undone. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few people sort of close to my situation um, didn't really support me in a way that I thought was the way they should. Um, I don't want to know about that, and it would be rude of me to ask, but what's it like when you're private life's spread across the papers, which it was at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't nice. Mm. Um, you know, you sort of sign up for a little bit, I guess, as a person who wants to be in the public eye. I mean, in the end, we're, I guess, as athletes, we're entertainers and we... But it doesn't mean that you, you want your personal life, you know, no. out there for everyone to see. And Especially when no one really knows exactly how it's happening. Um, yeah, you read stuff in these magazines or newspapers and, you know, people think they know what's happening but they probably don't have any real idea. Mm. Um, you know, and so that was tough and at the time I just sort of said, I'm done, I don't want to be anywhere near tennis and I, I went to a pretty bad place personally. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, and I had shoulder surgery sort of right in the middle of that as well. So it was like I had this shoulder surgery and then my breakdown happened and then I went... I had no money. I was sleeping on a mate's, you know, recliner for a few weeks because I was in a sling. So, like, I couldn't sleep properly. And, um, and I was on a pretty solid bender, to be honest. On um, the source? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, yeah, a lot of stuff, to be fair. Right. Um, you want to talk about that or you don't? Up no, I mean, it's – it was – it's – it's no, I mean, it wasn't uh, – it's interesting. It's not something I really look – back on too much now um i think it was pretty amazing with what i went through that i got to the point i did afterwards Mm. um because at the time i didn't think i'd probably come out of it Uh, and i think there's a few people probably pretty worried about me who were close to me but didn't think you come out of it full stop yeah full stop probably um you know i don't know if that was that probably wasn't for for a lot of the time but there was probably a time during it um but yeah i mean and footy sort of saved me from that to be honest um once my shoulders right, I sort of said, what am I going to do? And I started coaching a bit at a local club and more just because it was something I could do for easy money. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to go play footy and have a kick around again and just be around a bunch of guys because tennis was lonely and I felt like tennis had let me down as well um, just through the people that I'd sort of thought were my support network and, um, you know, from going from the lonely sport and my support network let me down, I just needed to be around a bunch of guys and have a bit of fun. 
And I reckon that's one of the great legendary parts of your story. It was like, oh, this is Australian tennis player, and now he's playing footy for was it Vermont? Vermont, yeah, for the Eagles. Yeah, like that's a, just a ripping story. Yeah, going back for the love of the game, like everything you've talked about, having to make money to keep going. All of a sudden, you're going to have a kick with mates on a Saturday, and it's the team you invite. Like, like you're grinning about it now. Yeah. It's obviously good fun. Oh, mate, it was great. And to be honest, like. <laughs> you know, I still drank a lot of beer, but I was doing it with my mates. You know, we, I was playing in the, the twos and, you know, you'd finish the game and you'd go sit on the outer side and you'd have 10 beers with the boys and watch the ones run around and then you'd go out for a bit and, you know, and, and it did. It, it saved me, to be honest. Um, not necessarily, you know, it saved me living-wise, but, like, it's personally it just, you know, it sort of got me through a time that was really bad. So then why did you not just think, right, well, that's me now. I'll do something else. I'll play footy on the weekends like the majority of us do and, and I'll be happy. Why all of a sudden did you start thinking about tennis when you said you couldn't even stand on the side of a tennis ball? Um, it's the same as like I have this drive where whatever I do, I need to do it properly. And so playing footy sort of became like, well, if I'm playing footy, I want to play footy at a better level. Mm. And I actually had a meeting with like the guys down at Williamstown um, and they were like, look, come train, we don't know. And obviously the first year I played footy, I was still on a bit of a bender. and had my... So I wasn't like super, like taking it as seriously as I could if I wanted to be a really good footballer. And then I started messaging, okay, maybe I can do this at a better level. I mean, I was still only 23 years old. Like it wasn't an old you know, guy. No. Um, so I had a few meetings and then someone called me up and said, we heard you down at Williamstown having a meeting. Um you know, do you, are you playing any tennis? I said, nah, no tennis. Like, don't <laughs> want to play tennis. He said, how about we've got like the Premier League starting up and we'll give you like 700 bucks to come play. And I said, mate, I don't. And $700 was a lot of hours on the court coaching to turn up and play, you know, two matches in a weekend, make 1400 bucks. It's good cash for you know, a guy that hasn't got a job. My word. Um, and I was like, I don't want to play tennis. Like, sorry, mate. Like, thanks for the call, but. He called me back and offered me 800. I said, no. He called me back and offered me something pretty good with some bonuses. And I said, oh, that's a lot of hours to be coaching <laughs> to try to make that sort of money. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I'll, okay, all right, I'll do it. And this was like two weeks before the start. So I was still coaching. So I still had a racket in my hand, but hadn't sort of done anything for myself. Um, and then me being me who has to do whatever I do, do it properly. I was like, all right, I'm going to start hitting balls. Started hitting with the guys I was coaching who were like a bunch of 16, 17-year-old guys who were okay. And then about four or five days before my first match, I slid out for a ball in the clay and I busted my ankle up. I was like, well, this is ridiculous. I've hurt my ankle, but I need to play because I need the money. I went down to like a local GP and told him just to fill my ankle everywhere he could with cortisone, which they're not supposed to, you know. Mm. You're meant to do this stuff properly. And I was like, no, mate, just fill it. Like, I'll tape it up. I can play. And then uh, I went out and played and... I'd, if I'm going to play, I'm not going to lose. You know, I, I might lose, but I'm not going to go out there and just take my money and go. And I actually never lost in that comp for like four years. So even when I started coming back, I'd never lost a singles match. Wow. So, um, and once I got out there, I, you know, I missed that competitive side. I missed the one-on-one and, you know, I was in a better place. I'd met, you know, my now fiance, you know, I'd met Brit and, just a few little things and my life started to look a little bit better and the guys I was coaching with started to like push me towards tennis. They're like, are you sure? Like you're 24 now. Mm. Are you sure you don't want to give this one little go? You know, we're prepared to help you. And I said, no, no, no. And they started just like pushing me and pushing me and eventually I said, yeah, if I'm going to do it, then I'm going to do it properly. Um, 
know, we went through some fundraising stuff. I think the first year I played 13 or 15 tournaments on my way back, which is nothing um, in terms of a real schedule. Um, we got myself to sort of 250. Um, I flew over to the US Open and I was one out of qualifying for four days and I didn't get in, which is a big expense for a guy who's, you know, 250 in the world and trying to make a comeback. So, so that's one person needs to drop out of qualifying. Or main draw of either before oh. the qualifying draw. So I needed one guy out of 220-odd guys. So you fly all the way over there. So I flew to New York, sat around for three days, practiced, got ready. No one pulled and out. no one pulled out. Oh, so yeah. pricks. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, and then the next year, Tennis Australia put a group of us together. It was myself, Matt Reed, um, JP Smith, and John Millman. Mm-hmm. And they said, look, this is a group of guys we think that can do okay. We can't fund you, but we'll give you a coach, and you guys have to, you know, this is your same thing, a payback system where the, between the four of you, you should be able, and four to one is a lot with a coach, you know, to do everything you needed. But we were four guys that sort of, we all wanted to crack and, um, that was Ben Mathias who coached me for sort of for the next three or four years and, you know, was with me till I was 50-odd in the world. And, you know, both John and I came out of that and have been top 100 and JP and Reedy have done well in singles and doubles. And, yeah, and it's sort of all just... And it was, it was, a, and it was a clear decision for me that if I was going to do it a second time that I was going to do everything I could. Because um, at 20, you probably think you are, but you're probably not. Mm. Um, and you think you're listening, but you're probably not. But at 24, 25... You know, things stick a little bit more and, um, yeah, I guess I had a bit more life. I mean, also my time off, didn't mention this, but I uh, I tried to join the MFB. Oh, to be a fiery. Yeah. So I did my applications. I sat the exams, got through the exams. And that was probably what I was going to do because I didn't want to necessarily coach tennis and I wanted something away from it. And I, I was probably, you know, this close to... Fyman Sam. Join the Five Brigade, yeah. Fyman Sam. So my little that, bloke loves Fyman yeah, Sam. Yeah, so that's literally what I was doing with my life. I was playing footy. I was trying to join the Fire Brigade. And <laughs> so with your second coming, for want of a better term, first time you, you were low 200s, second time round you got in the top 60 players in the world. How did you do that? How did you pick up 140 places the second time round? Um, I was a lot fitter. I mean, I, I worked hard. I mean, I worked really hard. Um, and I was lucky that with – I had good coaches previously, um, but with Ben, uh, Ben Mathias, like it just stuck. I mean, he was a guy that, you know, we could sit down and have a beer and, and not talk about tennis and then two seconds later if he said, mate, don't have another beer because you got to go train tomorrow, I'd listen to him. Okay. You know, and we worked out how I was going to play and we got very good at my game style. Um, I served – you know, I had a big serve beforehand, but I had a serve that was, you know, I could hit my spots and I had variation and I didn't miss a first volley and I'd make so many returns and I, I just had a really clear idea of how I should play um, and I stuck to it and that was basically it. I got really fit and I was clear about my game and, yeah. Away you went. You had an extraordinary year. I, I really, really um, look back on notes here, but I was taking a photo today of your notes. You had an extraordinary year in 2013. An extraordinary year. That's when you got to your career high of 53. So of all the players... 2015. That, right, 2015. Yes. So of everyone that plays tennis in the world, you're the 53rd best person, which is quite extraordinary. You play Wimbledon that year? Yep. Against Federer? Yep. Okay. So you're, this is your opportunity to explain to us, Sam. You go to the match, you arrive at Wimbledon, you're going to play Roger Federer. What happens from there? Where do you go? When do you see him? What's it like walking out on court? 
this is what I was talking to you about at the start, that yeah. the stuff that is mundane for you that we have no understanding of because we only ever watch not play Wimbledon. Yeah, so I guess for me I was a little bit lucky that I'd actually played Federer the year before at the US Open uh, on Centre Court's second round on a Friday night, which is one of their biggest nights. <laughs> Um, you know, US Open's the biggest court that we have, you know, in terms of capacity and it was full and it was the first time for me I'd played a big guy um, and I lost 4-4-4. Four, four, four. So I played Federer at a place that he'd done well on a big court for the first time. So I sort of knew what to experience. Um, and then at Wimbledon, I'd played two really good matches coming in as well. So I'd beaten Jack Sock um, first round and I'd beaten James Duckworth, who I was sharing my coach Ben with at the time and we were sharing a house and... Mm. Um, you know, we're actually staying together and we're really good mates. And so that was, you know, I came in, so I came in with, you know, confidence that I'd won a lot of matches and confidence that I'd played this guy before on a big court. Um, but I'd actually never been on to centre court at Wimbledon. Um, Ever? No, I, I might have looked through the the top or, I don't, but I don't even know if I'd sat and watched a match on there. Wow. Um, and... The head coach at Wimbledon throughout the year, he's the one that takes the players onto court, you know, through the you know members areas. And at Wimbledon to go in the members areas, you have to be full suit, tie, jacket, you know, shoes, the works. And I think we were maybe first match on. Um, and he came to me and you, can, you can't hit at Wimbledon, obviously because of the grass. So all the other courts, um, when I played fair at the US Open, I got to hit on Arthur Ashe. Um, in the morning and, you know, get a feel for what the court feels like. But at Wimbledon, you can't because they're trying to protect the grass. And and so he came to me and he said, hey, Sam, and I'd done my warm-up outside and he said, would you like to come, you know, I'll show you where you're going to walk and I'll take you out in the centre court. And I was dressed in, you know, Wimbledon was so strict with their white policy on the grounds and I had like blue shirts on, shorts on, a T-shirt, and I actually had my thongs on. <laughs> and I said, oh... So I'm sort of getting ready, but I'd love to go down. You know, he goes, no worries, come down. And so I'm walking through, walking past everyone who's you know, having their morning tea in the members area in their suits and I'm wearing you know, hat backwards and thongs and apparently I'm the first person ever to walk onto Wilmington Centre Court wearing a pair of thongs. So, Man after mine and a half, I'm wearing it now. <laughs> Respect to you, Sam. But uh, So, you know, you go out there, but, I mean, nothing still prepares you. And do you, you, know, for do, what? do you see him... In the locker room beforehand, so, do you speak? What happens down there? Wimbledon's a little different because the members' locker room is downstairs, uh, which holds either past champions or seeds. Uh, um, and then everyone else is upstairs in the yeah, north-south, it's called. Okay. Um, so we have like an Aussie corner. You know, all the Aussie guys are in one side and, um, you know, they're up footy scores for us and all this stuff, which is nice. But no, I mean, not really. I mean, you know, it's a fairly big place. Mm. I mean, if you want to avoid someone, you can. And, I mean... <laughs> Roger's a nice guy. I mean, everyone thinks it and sees it, but, you know, if you walk past, you'll say hi. I mean, you know I mean, it's, it's, you want to kill them and you want to beat them on the tennis court, but it's a, it's a tennis match, um, you know, with a guy who's quite nice, but, you know, no, don't run into each other. Um, Is he as nice as we expect him to be? Yeah, I mean, he, he's, if you see him in the locker room and you haven't seen him at a tournament, he'll come up and he'll shake your hand and say, hi, how are you? And, you know, he's to everybody. Um, so then how do you go out onto that court knowing you're playing against arguably the greatest player of all time on his favourite surface in a tournament that he's won forever and because it's him that the world will be watching you perform? Yeah, and probably no one really wanted me to win either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's daunting. I mean, you walk out and there's, you're definitely nervous. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, I have a game plan. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do and I think that was the thing. I mean, I was at the time I was very, very confident in my game. Um, 
you know, I'm still playing the best player ever, but I know that if I can hold my serve and do the things that I want to do well, that I can cause him a problem. Um, you know, grass is my favorite surfers too. Um, you know, and, and I felt like if there was a time that I was going to beat a guy like that, it was, it was then playing my best tennis on my surface. And you took know, a set was, off him. Yeah. I mean, I was nervous and I was down four and four and you know, the games that I got broken, I probably gained where I got broken cause I was playing Roger Federer, not because Roger Federer broke me. You know, you miss a ball that you probably, you know, normally you just make and you think you've got to do a little bit more because you're playing him. And, you know, in the third set, I settled in and I held my serve through and I won a tie break. And, you know, I, I took a set off Ferret Wimbledon. was the only set he lost till the final. Um, and I think it surprised a few people. And I think it was sort of a stamp on where I'd gotten to, you know, at that stage. And is it fun at that point? Is everything you've been through, you're out on centre court and you're playing well against one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time, you've taken a set of him. Is it time for it to be fun then? Yeah, but I mean, I got broken first game of the fourth <laughs> set, so it, um, it was great when I won the, the set 7-6, but I tell you, all of a sudden in the fourth set, and I, I felt like if I could have kept going, but I play, he took a toilet break and I played a loose game and all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to lose the fourth 6-2 and it gets away from you and, you know, you're out of Wimbledon. And, and what happens then? You get back into the locker room. Do you sit at home that night and think what if or do you think well you know that was okay I think I had about 20 beers right (laughs) no because I mean the thing for me is the grass court season is a a time I target Um, and you know I'd done well during that grass court season I won a challenger event I made quarters in Stuttgart Um, you know I'd had a really good grass court season and Mm -hmm. you know I was 53 in the world so um, it was sort of time to you know, let the hair down just for one day because we actually came straight back to Australia probably the day or two after because we had Davis come up in Darwin. You know, you sort of have one day to sort of you know reflect and it was it wasn't a drown your sorrow twenty beers. It was a celebration twenty beers because I'd had my best result you know at a at a well I went made Australian Open third round that year, but what I felt was my best result at a Grand Slam with who I'd beaten and and how I'd played and you know I was I was. I was flying, mate. I, you know, you're disappointed you lost, but at the same time I felt like I was I was flying and, and, you know, I didn't – at the time I didn't think I was anywhere close to my ceiling and I felt like I was just going to be – you know, I, I didn't think I was going to stop. Third round Wimbledon, and this is all public knowledge, but we're talking about 110 bucks in northern Queensland. What's a paycheck for making the third round of Wimbledon-ish? I think it was about 100,000 pounds. So – 200,000 bucks. Yeah, 160 or something at the time, I think it was. 160, 170,000 at the time. It's feast or famine, isn't it? Like, does that keep you coming back thinking, you know, I only have to get to a certain level and I'm not going to be battling, I'm going to be okay and then I'm going to be comfortable and then, you know, you're looking at the bloke at the top of the tree who's going to have more money than any of us can even conceive. Yeah, well, I think up until maybe 2014, my career prize money was like 300,000 US dollars. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think by the end of 2016, I think I had 1.8. Wow. So, like, yeah. you know, something like that, 1.7, I mean. you know. So yeah. in, in you know, two and a half, three good years, I'd made five times my career prize money basically, um, you know, which, yeah, I mean, the rewards are there. And, that, and that, that's why I think now deciding to retire um, and because everyone's, you know, I've had a really good career in doubles as well. Mm. You know, I made quarters at the Australian Open this year. I've made semifinals at the French Open. And, um, you know, I think up until the US Open, I hadn't lost in round 16, you know, maybe once in the last two or three years before that. So, um, you know, everyone said, you know, there's so much money to be made out there. You feel, And 
at a time where prize money in tennis is at the top end is getting bigger and bigger, yep. um, it didn't entice me to keep going. And that was, I think, what made me think I was making the right decision that I wasn't just doing it, you know, for the money. And, and yeah, definitely when you're ranking drops, you do think I'll keep going because the rewards are there if you can have a run somewhere. And, and it's tough because at the top it is, it's so good. I mean, the money the top guys make and even when I was 15, the money you can make, but then you drop out of the top 100 and as soon as you're not in the main draw of those grand slams, you know, it, it definitely all changes. So when you're at your peak, you're 53 in the world, you've taken a set off Federer. If you play that match 10 times, do you beat him once? At the, at the time? Yep. Do you beat him twice? Do you not beat him? I'd like to think at the time I could. Okay. Um, you know, things would have to line up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... I think if I played it a second time, I'm not going to be as nervous as I was the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think at the time I believed, I definitely believed I could beat him that time. Um, you also played Nadal on clay. So you played Federer on grass, you played Nadal on clay. What's he like, Nadal? What's he like as a fella? <laughs> yeah, he's the same guy. He'll, he'll come up and say hi to me, and obviously, a little different. I mean, I'm not, my Spanish is no, pretty average. <laughs> But um, no, I mean, Rafa always says g'day and, well, he doesn't say g'day. He says, Hola. hey, Sam. Hey, Sam. <laughs> I don't know right. what he says. Right. I can't think, but. Um, so what's it like playing Nadal on clay, which is, to me, even more elite than Federer on grass? Yeah, and so I went into that match, the French Open, in a completely different space to what I played <laughs> Federer at Wimbledon. Okay. Um, so I had foot surgery. This was May 2016. So I had foot surgery October, November 2015. And... I don't know if I'd won a main draw match in a tour event since. Mm. So I can't – actually, that's a lie. I won a round at the Australian Open. Um, I lost to Murray second round. And then I went in this period where I stro- I lost a r- lot of close matches in a row. And I decided to go – even though my ranking was still sort of 60-odd I just or 70, I decided to go to Asia and play these challenger events because I didn't want to play the clay season. I wanted to go try and make some points. And I was really fighting – in my head, I wanted to make the Olympics, which was later in the year. So I went to Asia to play tournaments on hard court and I got there and I had this like battling neck problem that I just, and when you're playing challenge events, the medical supports, especially in Asia, is nowhere near like it is playing the tour level, which I'd sort of been doing for a period of time. And I actually, the last two weeks in Asia had pulled out with this neck problem back to back weeks. And so I got to the French Open having not played a clay court match since the French Open the year before. And with a neck problem where I hadn't been able to get on court and I, so my confidence was low. Um, and, and you draw Nadal. And the draw came out and when it came out, I'd seen a mock draw on the screen inside. It flicked over and I thought I was actually playing someone else. And so I went out to practice and I said to Leighton, oh, I'm playing this guy and, you know, oh, fired up and feeling good. And Leighton mid-practice goes, are you sure that's who you play? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the draw in them. And he goes, he says, mate, you're not playing him. I said, well, who am I playing? And he said, you're playing Rafa <laughs> and I distinctly remember throwing my racket at my bag walking to my bag and saying oh well, let's go hit on grass I'm done <laughs> that's the end of the clay court season which you know and then I actually picked you know I picked up my racket it was sort of like my first emotion was like well you know oh great like I've drawn the guy that's won the tournament nine times and I haven't played a single match <laughs> on it this year uh, and I was low on confidence and just everything and I was yeah, I actually ended up having my best practice probably of the whole whole you know, three months. Um, but I went out and played him and, mate, I wasn't ready to play 
you know, a guy like that on clay and it was one one on one and it was a quick one on one. So he's a god on clay? I mean, he's won the French Open ten times. Enough, I mean, it? I think it speaks for itself. Back to Sammy in a moment. Last week on the Howie Games, we featured Shane Watson, superstar cricketer. Thanks for all the positive feedback sent my way on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at MarkHoward03. Always love to read the messages. And I'm really glad the podcast changed a lot of people's perceptions about Shane, the first person I have ever met that loves Ricky Ponting more than I do. My first um, time that I had anything to do with Ricky was um, obviously he was one of my favourite players. There's no question. And playing in Tasmania, we had a pre-season tour in Adelaide, um, and Ricky came along to play a couple of those games. And Greg Shippard knew how much I, you know, loved Ricky, so he actually got us to um, room together. <laughs> so I walked into this the room in Adelaide. I don't, I think it was a Stanford, not, uh, not it might have been a Stanford Plaza or one of those. Walked in, Ricky's just sitting um, at the at the um, at the table, and I was like, I "Can't believe this is Ricky Ponting." <laughs> and that night, that night, he's sleeping in the bed, like obviously next to me, because our two just twin twin beds. I did not sleep a wink. <laughs> I was that excited. I was like, I can't believe Ricky Ponting sleeping in the bed next to me. This well, is ridiculous. Well, oh, no, not that much. <laughs> I wouldn't have freaked him out like that. But I was just like, this is the coolest. This is the coolest thing alive. That is the ripping fella, Shane Watson, last week on the Howie Game. Okie dokie, back to Sam. Hey, mate, I want to read you something to you. And again, I say I really refer to my iPad in this. And as you know, see, there's no questions written down. This is something that you tweeted. Um, and I know a lot of kids listen to this show. Um, so, Mum and Dad, if you're in the car, um, there's some bad language coming up. This is a tweet you sent out after you lost a match. And then you took some photos of what people sent you on either Instagram or Twitter, I'm not sure. A guy here, I won't name his, has commented, newsflash, you dumb fuck. Double faulting three times in the same game decreases the likelihood of winning that game. Either you're a piece of shit who doesn't understand that or you just love making it obvious that you fix matches. Fuck you. I hope your whole family is murdered, not today, but when you have young children and pets. Fucking loser. You lost that day, obviously. This brings up social media. It brings up match fixing in tennis. I hope you didn't mind me reading that back to you. I presume no. This was only this was only a few weeks. This was this was this literally recently, yeah. a couple of weeks ago when I was battling with my decision whether to keep playing or not as well. Another bloke's written on the back of that. A different person. Three double fault in last service games. Twelve double faults in whole match. You know what? You just ordered your death. I'm going to come <laughs> and fucking kill you. I don't even know what to make of that. Yeah, I mean, I sort of chuckle at it, but it's... It's, it's not funny, it's not. It's not a, a funny laugh. Like, it's not, ha-ha, I'm laughing, cause, but it's, it's, it's almost like... And I know I've received it because I'm the one that, you know, took a screenshot of that and posted it. Yeah. But the fact that people write this stuff and I think it's now with social media and, you know, tennis you can gamble on. People can go and place a bet on a match at any level of any tournament anywhere in the world... And, you know, people sit there and have lost their whatever bet they've made and think that it's okay to, you know, go and hurl abuse at another human being like that. And it's pretty disgusting, to be honest. It's outrageous. Yeah. So how do you feel when you come back from a, a just recently here in Melbourne, a, a footballer uh, played for Collingwood that you would know and for the Bulldogs, Travis Cloak came out and talked about the effect that social media had on him. Um, what, what do you do when you read stuff like that? 
Um, but what? I know, I know. In your <laughs> mind, you think, well, it's just some keyboard warrior, etc. But I would imagine if you get enough of that, it's hard not to take some of it in. Yeah, I mean, I hundred percent. You know, the obvious thing for me to sit here and say is that you go through and you block the people and yep. you you push it aside and you move on. And but it's it's not necessarily always as easy as just say, oh well, it's some you know, person you don't because because that's only the only reason I post something like that is that's one example of and it's me probably where I get to the end of my tether and I'm like mm. you know this shouldn't be out there you know and that's just one day of me posting I mean and and one person I mean guys are getting this sort of stuff on a regular basis and yeah I probably had just reached into my tether that day where I screenshotted that and posted it and um yeah I mean it's it, it does it, it hits you at times um because you know, obviously that's after a loss. So I'm already yeah. feeling the effects of a loss probably, you know, at a period where I was battling with a lot of stuff, you know, obviously the confidence in my tennis and whether to keep playing and, you know, there's a lot of things you deal with on the road, but then to have, you know, I guess this then is just a, it's just another thing that. And to me, that's someone that's bet on you. Yes. Which has become prevalent in all sports, not just your sport. And they obviously haven't just watched my results lately. No, well, like if they were paying close attention, they probably wouldn't have, mate. They wouldn't have backed you, is what you're saying. So, have you ever come across this side of betting in tennis? You know, that it's happened to numerous players in the last couple of years. Have you ever had anyone say to you, hey, Sam, you know, you're struggling to pay the bills? Yeah, I had a situation this year just before Wimbledon where I reported it and it was. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah, and it came out in a couple of things. And what happened? Um, someone just sent me a message on social media and said, "I'll give you X amount to you know lose the first set of your match." And you know, I did the right thing. I you know took my screenshots and I sent it to the. Wow. We have an integrity unit in tennis, um, and I sent it to them. And I spoke to the supervisor and I went through all this stuff with, you know, and and so, <laughs> I don't know whether it's serious or not serious, and it's something I would have never thought about doing because you can very quickly for for short pay or a quick pay, you know, ruin, mm. you know, your whole career. And at the time, it w- I wasn't thinking about hanging them up, not that you would contemplate it anyway. But, no. um, but yeah, I mean, it happened to me, yeah, this year. So, gee, I didn't expect you to say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is it a concern for tennis? I guess it's a concern for any sport. I think it's in any sport. And yeah. I think any sport that it's allowing gambling and, and I think <laughs> – Maybe the problem with tennis is the lower level the money is not great. So mm. I think it's those people that they'll probably target. Um, you know, and whether, you know, we've had some instances here in Australia where, you know, I don't know what happened with the stuff, but you mm. know, guys approached and took money and did all that stuff. And it's sad because one young guy that did it had a pretty, what we thought, what everyone thought, had a pretty bright future. Um, you know, he was hitting the Davis Cup squad and all this sort of stuff. So. I'm sure he probably regrets it now. You talk about uh, the Davis Cup squad. Um, I think that's why you'll always be a much-loved figure within Australian sport is because you seem to be a guy that when it was Davis Cup, for whatever reason, you could take your game to another level. Um, you'll have to fill me in the details. I remember you guys being down 0-2 in a rubber and you winning a doubles game, then winning a singles game and maybe even Leighton got across yeah. the line 3-2 in the end. Who was that against? Yeah, up in Darwin against Kazakhstan. So that was on the back of that Wimbledon run. Right. Um, so is it great playing for your uh, country? It's I, I get goosebumps. Yeah. Like literally sitting here, it literally gave me goosebumps talking about it because <laughs> um, probably that stage of my career, I got to the stage where I knew I would never win a singles Grand Slam. And so playing for Dave, playing for Australia in Davis Cup for me was the best. Um, 
And, you know, we had two good runs out in the last few years where we made the semifinals and I felt like that was going to be my thing in tennis that was, you know, I was going to win the Davis Cup and that was going to be my... Legacy. Yeah. Um, and that weekend in Darwin is still one of my... F- probably as close to playing, you know, playing Federer at Wimbledon Centre Court, Darwin is probably one of my best tennis memories. Uh, probably one of the best memories in my life. Um, you know, I came in confident after that run at Wimbledon and... Um, practicing great and they went with the two young boys Thanasi and Nick on day one and uh, for whatever reason you know Nick was you know under the pump and didn't handle it well and Thanasi lost to Kukushkin who has a really good Davis Cup record and we're down 0-2 against the team that we were thought to be a you know 4-1 or a 5-0 whitewash to make the semi-finals and mm. um, Leighton and I had always been you know in the mix probably to plan to play the doubles um, and we sort of sat down and said you know, let's play, let's win, just take it one match at a time and we won the doubles easy. And I remember Wally coming to me in the locker room after the doubles um, and said, how do you feel about tomorrow? And what are you thinking? And and I said, mate, I said, I think the matchups were better if I play Kukushkin, Rusty plays Nadovyasov, the way it works out. I said, if you put me against Kukushkin in the first match, I will not lose, Rusty will win. We win 3-2 and we're in the semis. And Wally sort of, Wally Masur as the captain, looked at me and said... All right, and he walked away, and he didn't really say anything. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence. Yeah, and I, and I was like, "All right." <laughs> well, I told him, and so he came to me that night and said, "Mate, we're going to go with you in the first match." And so all of a sudden, I've told him I'm going to win, and I'm like, "Well, now I have to <laughs> win." Yeah, and yeah, I won in four sets, and you know, I, I was so nervous watching Leighton as well because we didn't want to come back from zero two and then to two mm. all and. But yeah, that was that was probably the best weekend of my tennis career, I reckon. It sticks in my mind. Um, this podcast is about positivity and and motivation. So, I don't want to ask you about everything that's happened with some of the young blokes in Australian tennis. But what I will ask you: you travel around the world. You've got a certain amount of talent, Sam. You said as a sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old, you weren't exceptional. What would you give to have exceptional talent? in the sport that you've worked really hard at? And what do you think when you see people with exceptional talent not using it? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one because do I wish I had more talent? Yeah, probably, but I became pretty content with what I had. So, mm. um, But I certainly feel like I maximised what I had yep. and I left it all out there. So that's probably whether I'd give anything for more talent, but I, I think it's tough when you see people in any mm-hmm. sport sport or profession or you know have a, a certain talent towards things and not maximize it um yeah i mean uh, are you shaking your head about well i just you get the question you know, everyone who i speak to asks me about the young aussie boys you know and what are they really like and what and yeah i mean at some stage it becomes hard to defend when they keep making the same mistakes um you know but a guy like Nick is a very, very good player. Um, and we talk about the social media stuff we spoke about mm. before. Everything these days is in the public eye. Um, I'm sure you did some stuff when you were 20 years old that if people knew about, yep. you'd be in a bit of trouble. Um, we have to be more careful now because everything is, you know, taken on a smartphone or you say something and it's in the media and retweet it 100,000 times before you blink. Um, all you can say is that you hope it hits home eventually. I mean, I don't know. I mean, someone's going to get through to them eventually, um, whether it's soon enough that they can become one of the best players ever or you know, fully maximise what they've got, then you hope so, but you, you know, who knows? 
can I tell you, Sam, that I um, didn't do anything wrong when you were no, talking? No, no, I did so many things wrong. But <laughs> to, when you're talking about Nick Kuros himself, I am one of the great lovers of entertainers in sport. So, um, mate, I cheer for that bloke every single time I see him play and I find myself defending him, whether it's in the media or whatever, because I just love that. <laughs> mate, I just love to be entertained. And, you know, if I watch one match at this year's Australian Open, it'll be Nick Kyrgios. Oh, and it'll be full. And I bloody hope he wins. And it'll be full. And everyone's the same. And every time it wants him, because he's an enigma. Yeah. And but, you know what? He's a good guy. I mean, he is. That's good to hear. You know, and around Davis Cup, he loves it. And he'll be out there picking up balls when you're practicing and, you know, they're playing. If you need someone to hit in for a double set, like he'll jump in and he's all about the guys and the team and, you know, and, and Thomas loved to have him there. And, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. And I think that's half the spectacle sometimes. No, mate. I, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'll say it unashamedly. Um, I'm a massive fan of what he does because he puts bums on seats and he entertains and sport is about entertainment these days. Hey, we haven't even mentioned nearly an hour in. You are a world record holder. <laughs> I was, oh, yeah, that's amazing. We got through an hour and no one brought me. It's the first well, thing. You're a bloody world record holder. <laughs> um, tell people for what and where you did it and how you do things like that. Yeah, fastest serve ever, mate. Ever? Yeah. So we're banging on about some bloke called Federer <laughs> and Nadal. We mentioned Murray, Djokovic, Hewitt. Uh-uh. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that by itself would have been okay and then being 50 in the world by itself would have been okay. But I think when I was able to mix both of them, <laughs> it sort of helped me a lot with my profile and who I was and... Um. Yeah. One day in career, I was just dropping rockets. Well, yeah. So, well, was it career? Oh, hang on. I shouldn't be saying that at the moment with what's going on over there, should no, I? But no, no, <laughs> not your sort of Kim Jong Un style. South Korea, right? South um, Korea in Busan. Um, and yeah, I mean, at the time, I mean, I, I've always had a big serve. I mean, I've got, I think, I've got equal fast, second fastest serve at Wimbledon ever. Um, one other time in Washington, I remember throwing down 158 miles an hour and you know, people always say, oh, you know, it was a channel. You know, I've, I've served fast serves, so, and it all matters on conditions and all this stuff. But, yeah, this one this one tournament in career, I was serving big, so. And and did, did it have a radar? It had a radar. That popped up? Yep. Did you know it was a world record? At the time, yeah. I mean, I knew I had a fast serve, so you knew what the, I mean, as tennis players, you, you, you all know what's going on with everything and. Did you um, like, give a little wave to the crowd or anything? Or? Yeah, I was losing, so I was like, yes, something's <laughs> going right in this match. Was it an ace? <laughs> it was an ace down the tee, yeah. Did you feel it was anything different when you let it go? No, it, I was, it was big. I was serving big. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, when you, you, you can feel when you're serving really big ones. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's not really a, like a muscled serve. I mean, I don't know how the fast bowlers feel when they're bowling their foot, but it, everything just feels sort of easy. Like you're getting after it, but it's easy power and... Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the rest is sort of history with it. Very cool, though. Yeah. Like in the history of tennis. Yeah, well, oh, a lot of serves, Sam. I'm retiring with it still intact. Well, unless not someone breaks it between now and the <laughs> end of the Aussie Open, but I'm hoping it uh, stands for a little while. Who will beat it? No one out there yet. Right. No one at the moment, I wouldn't think. Okay. Um, and I think a few things in tennis would probably have to change. You know, they'd have to speed the balls back up a little bit and these sorts of things, but... I'm sure at some point someone's going to come along and... 253 kilometres an hour. That's, 63. Uh, 263. Oh, so I've taken don't, 10 cups. 263 kilometres yeah. an hour. How far away is that bloke at the other end of the court? <laughs> slows down a lot by the time it gets there. Right. Still fast. Hey, you, we talked earlier on, I've taken up enough of your time. Millie's been very good, by the way. 
Yeah, that's usually a worry. I don't know what she's doing. <laughs> she's probably <laughs> torn the doona apart or something. From a outside point of view, you look at your figures and see, right, this bloke got to number 53 in the world. And if you were writing about that, he'd be, ah, oh, he was a good player, he was a journeyman, that type of term. But if you actually think about how many people are playing tennis on the planet today and you were the 53rd best of those people, to me that's extraordinary, let alone what it means to be top 10 or number one. What does it mean to you that you put your heart and soul into this and you became the 53rd best person in the world at it? Yeah, I mean, I think I've got probably mixed feelings. Um, you know, looking back right now as we sit here, it's amazing. Um you know, if you picked any job and you're 53, you know, the 53rd best person at your job at anything in the world, you're probably pretty good at it. It's truly elite. Um, you know, and I can fully walk away at the Australian Open and be happy with what I did um, with no regrets that I left it all out there and that 53 was amazing. At the time when I was 53 and I had to stop with injury, it hurt because I felt like I, I had a little bit more to give um, and what I could have got to, I don't know. Um but no, as we sit here, it, it's, it's I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with the stuff I achieved in tennis, just generally. I'm just going to try and fire a couple of quick ones to you off the top of your head. Sure. Um, worst place you've ever played tennis? Oh, Algeria. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an easy one. Come on. Worst Close e- second with Uzbekistan. Worst experience playing tennis away from the court? Like, have you ever been, I don't know, robbed or sick as a dog or arrested or... <laughs> No, I mean, I've been sick a bunch of times, but I can't think of one where I was like so bad that I was. I've never had anything so so bad happen to me that it was. Yeah. What's in one word? What's the best thing about being a professional tennis player? Uh, my mates. What's the worst thing about being a professional tennis player? Uh, loneliness. How do you deal with loneliness? It's tough. You you lean on the guys around you. Um, you know, coming from Australia is probably. You know, you're firing stuff in here, but coming from Australia is probably tougher than a lot of places because home's a long way away from everywhere. Um, so the guys on tour become your best mates and they become your support network and, yeah, and then all of a sudden you go to a week where they're not there and you're by yourself again. In your opinion, who's the best you've played against? Roger Federer. Roger Federer. How do you feel about the fact in 20 years' time you'll be able to tell your kids that you played against Roger Federer? Yeah, I'll be proud. Hopefully it doesn't take 20 years to be able to tell them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> true, true. But no, I mean, you know, I can't wait till they, you know, pick up a book in my house and there's a picture of them shaking hands with Federer and, you know, hopefully they have enough to do with tennis that they understand what what that was. How do you think you'll feel when you walk off the court at the Australian Open, possibly after just having won it in your final? (laughs) (laughs) Sam, I don't know, but how will you feel? Because that'll be it then. Um, I don't know what to expect, to be honest. Um, You know, I get a little emotional probably thinking about it. yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, it's, you know, the, the last time I stopped from tennis, it was in a completely different circumstance to what this is going to be. So hopefully, it's a, it's a happy time. If there's any youngster out there, and we're blessed that we have a lot of people listening on the way to, I get messages they're on the way to tennis training or soccer training with their parents or footy or, um, what do you say to a young athlete that wants to become the best they can be? Uh, enjoy it. <laughs> um, because you'll spend a lot of time doing it if you want this to become your living. Um, but I'd say also, you know, don't neglect the other parts of your life. Like make sure you, you know, have a, a life balance as well, you know. Keep family important, keep friends important. 
um, because being a professional athlete, especially a tennis player, can be very lonely at times and you will need those people. And as you get older, you realise how much those relationships really mean. Hey, Sam, you've got a fiancé, you've got a new dog, you've got a new house, you've got a whole new life awaiting you, mate. Best of luck at the Australian Open and everything going forward. And I appreciate your honesty and probably shedding a little bit of life on what it's really like to be a professional tennis player, mate. You're a star. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, mate. Good on you, mate. ta Ah, thanks to Sam for taking us inside the tennis tour in such an insightful and honest manner. Good luck to the big fella as he winds up his career. May he bow out in style. Yelena Dockich next Thursday. Have a wonderful week. You guys rock. Until then, you know the deal. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Try, try, try Listener